0: Good day, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast. Today, I want to discuss the concept of science's big blind spot. And it's tempting to think science gives a God's eye view of reality, but we forget the place of human experience at our peril. And we're going to uh, explore this through the thoughts of of three uh, uh, professors. Uh, one is Adam Frank, and he's a professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester in New York, and he is the author of several books. The latest being Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds, and the Fate of the Earth. And then there's Marcelo Glaser, and he's a theoretical physicist at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, where he is the Appleton Professor of Natural Philosophy and Professor of Physics and Astronomy and the Director of the Institute of Cross-Disciplinary Engagement. And he is the author of The Island of Knowledge. Then Evan Thompson is a professor of philosophy and a scholar at the Peter Wall Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And he's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and his latest book is Waking, Dreaming and Being. The problem of time is one of the greatest puzzles of modern science. The first bit of the conundrum is cosmological. To understand time, scientists talk about finding a first cause or initial condition, a description of the universe at the very beginning or at time equals zero. But, to determine a system's initial condition, we need to know the total system. We need to make measurements of the positions and velocities of its constituent parts, such as particles, atoms, fields, and so forth. This problem hits a hard wall when we deal with the origin of the universe itself. Because we have no view from the outside, we can't step outside the box in order to look within. Because the box is all there is. A first cause is not only unknowable, but also scientifically unintelligible. The second part of the challenge is philosophical. Scientists have taken physical time to be the only real time, whereas experiential time, the subjective sense of time's passing, is considered a cognitive fabrication of secondary importance. The young Albert Einstein made this position clear in his debate with philosopher Henry Bergson in the 1920s when he claimed that the physicist's time is the only time. With age, Einstein became more circumspect. Up to the time of his death, he remained deeply troubled about how to find a place for the human experience of time in the scientific worldview. These quandaries rest on the presumption that physical time with an absolute starting point is the only real kind of time. But what if the question of the beginning of time is ill-posed. Many of us like to think that science can give us a complete objective description of cosmic history, distinct from us and our perception of it. But this image of science is deeply flawed. In our urge for knowledge and control, we've created a vision of science as a series of discoveries about how reality is in itself, a God's eye view of nature Such an approach not only distorts the truth, but creates a false sense of distance between ourselves and the world. That divide arises from what we call the blind spot, or the scientific blind spot, which science itself cannot see. In the blind spot sits experience, the sheer presence and immediacy of lived perception. Behind the blind spot sits the belief that physical reality has absolute primacy in human knowledge, a view that can be called scientific materialism. In philosophical terms, it combines scientific objectivism, where science tells us about the real mind-independent world, and physicalism, uh, where science tells us that physical reality is all there is. Elementary particles, moments in time, genes, the brain, all these things are assumed to be fundamentally real. By contrast, experience, awareness and consciousness are taken to be secondary. The scientific task becomes about figuring out how to reduce them to something physical, such as the behavior of neural networks, the architecture of computational systems or some measure of information. This framework faces two intractable problems. The first concerns scientific objectivism. We never encounter physical reality outside of our observations of it. Elementary particles, time, genes and the brain are manifest to us only through our measurements, models and manipulations. Their presence is always based on scientific investigations which occur only in the field of our experience. This doesn't mean that scientific knowledge is arbitrary or a mere projection of our own minds. On the contrary, some models and methods of investigation work much better than others, and we can test this. But these tests never give us nature as it is in itself, outside our way of seeing and acting on things. Experience is just as fundamental to scientific knowledge as the physical reality it reveals the second problem concerns physicalism now according to the most reductive version of physicalism science tells us that everything including life the mind and consciousness can be reduced to the behavior of the smallest material constituents you're nothing but your neurons and your neurons are nothing but little bits of matter Here, life and the mind are gone and only lifeless matter exists. To put it bluntly, the claim that there is nothing but physical reality is either false or empty. If physical reality means reality as physics describes it, then the assertion that only physical phenomena exist is false. Why? Because physical science, including biology and computational neuroscience, doesn't include an account of consciousness. This is not to say that consciousness is something unnatural or supernatural. The point is that physical science doesn't include an account of experience. But we know that experience exists. So the claim that the only things that exist are what physical science tells us is false. On the other hand... If physical reality means reality according to some future and complete physics, then the claim that there is nothing else but physical reality is empty because we have no idea what such a future physics will look like, especially in relation to consciousness. This problem is known as Hempel's Dilemma, named after the illustrious philosopher of science, Carl Gustav Hempel, who lived from 1905 to 1997. So faced with this quandary, some philosophers argue that we should define physical, such that it rules out radical emergentism, where life and the mind are emergent from, but irreducible to physical reality, and panpsychism, that mind is fundamental and exists everywhere, including at the microphysical level. This move, would give physicalism a definite content but at the cost of trying to legislate in advance what physical can mean, instead of leaving its meaning to be determined by physics. We reject this move. Whatever physical means should be determined by physics and not armchair reflection. After all, the meaning of the term physical has changed dramatically since the 17th century. Matter was once thought to be inert, impenetrable, rigid, and subject only to deterministic and local interactions. Today we know that this is wrong in virtually all respects. We accept that there are several fundamental forces, particles that have no mass, quantum indeterminacy, and non-local relations. We should further expect further dramatic changes in our concept of physical reality in the future. For these reasons, we can't simply legislate what the term physical can mean as a way to get out of Hempel's dilemma. Objectivism and physicalism are philosophical ideas, not scientific ones. Even if some scientists espouse them. They don't logically follow from what science tells us about the physical world or from the scientific method itself. By forgetting that these perspectives are a philosophical bias, not a mere data point, uh, scientific materialists ignore the ways that immediate experience in the world can never be separated. Now, we're not alone in our opinions. Our account of The Blind Spot is based on the work of two major philosophers and mathematicians, Edmund Husserl and Alfred North Whitehead. Husserl, a German thinker who founded the philosophical movement of phenomenology, argued that lived experience is the source of science. It's absurd in principle to think that science can step outside it. The life world of human experience is the grounding soil of science and the existential and spiritual crisis of modern scientific culture. What we are calling the blind spot comes from forgetting its primacy. Whitehead, who taught at Harvard University from the 1920s, argued that science relies on a faith, in the order of nature that can't be justified by logic. That faith rests directly on our immediate experience. Whitehead's so-called process philosophy is based on a rejection of the bifurcation of nature, which divides immediate experience into the dichotomies of mind, versus body, and perception versus reality. Instead, he argues that what we call reality is made up of evolving processes that are equally physical and experiential. Nowhere is the materialistic bias in science more apparent than in quantum physics, the science of atoms and subatomic particles. Atoms, conceived as the building blocks of matter, have been with us since the Greeks. The discoveries over the last hundred years would seem to be a vindication for all those who have argued for an atomist and reductionist conception of nature. But what the Greeks, Isaac Newton, and the 19th century scientists meant by the thing called an atom, and what we mean today, are very different. In fact, it's the very notion of a thing, that quantum mechanics calls into question. The classic model for bits of matter involves little billiard balls clumping together and jostling around in various forms and states. In quantum mechanics, however, matter has the characteristics of both particles and waves. There are also limits to the precision with which measurement can be made and measurements seem to disturb the reality that experimenters are trying to size up. Today, interpretations of quantum mechanics disagree about what matter is and what our role is with respect to it. These differences uh, concern the so-called measurement problem, how the wave function of the electron reduces from a superimposition of several states to a single state upon observation. For several schools of thought, quantum physics doesn't give us access to the way the world fundamentally is in itself. Rather, it only lets us grasp how matter behaves in relation to our interactions with it. According to the so-called Copenhagen interpretation of Niels Bohr, for example, the wave function has no reality outside of the interaction between the electron and the measurement device. Other approaches such as the many-worlds and hidden variables interpretation seeks to preserve and observe an observer-independent status for the wave function, but this comes at the cost of adding features such as unobservable parallel universes, a relatively new interpretation known as quantum Bayesianism or cubism, which combines quantum information theory and Bayesian probability theory, takes a different tack. It interprets the irreducible probabilities of a quantum state not as an element of reality, but as the degrees of belief an agent has about the outcome of a measurement. In other words, making a measurement is like making a bet on the world's behavior, and once the measurement is made, updating one's knowledge. Advocates of this interpretation sometimes describe it as participatory realism because human agency is woven into the process of doing physics as a means of gaining knowledge about the world. From this viewpoint, the equations of quantum physics don't refer just to the observed atom, but also to the observer and the atom taken as a whole in a kind of observer participancy. Now, participatory realism is controversial, but it's precisely this plurality of interpretations with a variety of philosophical implications that undermines the sober certainty of the materialist and reductionist position on nature. In short, there's still no simple way to remove our experience as scientists from the characterizations of the physical world. This brings us back to the blind spot when we look at the objects of scientific knowledge we don't tend to see the experiences that underpin them we do not see how experience makes their presence to us possible because we lose sight of the necessity of experience we erect a false idol of science as something that bestows absolute knowledge of reality independent of how it shows up and how we interact with it The blind spot also reveals itself in the study of consciousness. Most scientific and philosophical discussions of consciousness focus on qualia, the qualitative aspects of our experience, such as the perceived red glow of a sunset or the sour taste of a lemon. Neuroscientists have established close correlations between such qualities and certain brain states, and they've been able to manipulate how we experience these qualities by acting directly on the brain. Nevertheless, there is still no scientific explanation of qualia in terms of brain activity or any other physical process for that matter, nor is there any real understanding of what such an account would look like. The mystery of consciousness includes more than just qualia. There is also the question of subjectivity. Experiences have a subjective character. They occur in the first person. Why should a given sort of physical system have the feeling of being a subject? Science has no answer to this question. At a deeper level, we might ask how experience comes to have a subject-object structure in the first place. Scientists and philosophers often work with the image of an inside mind or subject grasping an outside world or object. But philosophers from different cultural traditions have, uh, traditions have challenged this image. For example, the philosopher William James, whose notion of pure experience influenced Cicero and Whitehead, wrote in 1905 about the active sense of living which we all enjoy before reflection shatters our instinctive world for us. That active sense of living doesn't have an inside-outside subject-object structure. It's subsequent reflection that imposes the structure on experience. Now, more than a millennium ago, um, uh, Vasubandhu, who is an Indian Buddhist philosopher of the 4th to 5th century common era, criticized the reification of phenomena into independent subject versus independent objects. For uh, Vasubandhu, the subject object structure is a deep seated cognitive distortion of a causal network of phenomenal moments that are empty of an inner subject grasping an outer object. To bring the point home, consider that in certain intense states of absorption, during meditation, dance or highly skilled performances, the subject-object structure can drop away. And we are left with a sense of sheer felt presence. How is such a phenomenal presence possible in a physical world? Science is silent on this question. And yet, without such phenomenal presence, science is impossible, for presence is a precondition for any observation or measurement to be possible. Scientific materialists will argue that the scientific method enables us to get outside of experience and grasp the world as it is in itself. As will be clear by now, we disagree. Indeed, we believe that this way of thinking misrepresents the very method and practice of science. In general terms, here's how the scientific method works. First, we set aside aspects of human experience on which we can't always agree, such as how things look or taste or feel. Second, using mathematics and logic, we construct abstract formal models that we treat as stable objects of public consensus. Third, we intervene in the course of events by isolating and controlling things that we can perceive and manipulate. Fourth, we use these abstract models and concrete interventions to calculate future events. Fifth, we check these predicted events against our perceptions. An essential ingredient of this whole process is technology, machines, our equipment that standardize these procedures, amplify our powers of perception, and allow us to control phenomena to our own ends. The blind spot arises when we start to believe that this method gives us access to unvarnished reality, but experience is present at every step. Scientific models must be pulled out from observations, often mediated by our complex scientific equipment. They are idealizations, not actual things in the world galileo 's model of a frictionless plane, for example, the Bohr model of the atom with a small dense nucleus with electrons circling around it in quantized orbits like planets around the sun. evolutionary models of isolated populations all of these exist in the scientist 's mind, not in nature they are abstract mental representations, not mind-independent entities. Their power comes from the fact that they are useful for helping to make testable predictions. But these two never take us outside experience, for they require specific kinds of perceptions performed by highly trained observers. For these reasons, scientific objectivity can't stand outside experience. In this context, Objective simply means something that's true to the observations agreed upon by a community of investigators using certain tools. Science is essentially a highly refined form of human experience based on our capacities to observe, act and communicate. So, the belief that scientific models correspond to how things truly are doesn't follow from the scientific method. Instead, it comes from an ancient impulse, one often found in monotheistic religions, to know the world as it is in itself, as God does. The the contention that science reveals a perfectly objective reality is more theological than scientific. Now, recent philosophers of science who target such naive realism argue that science doesn't culminate in a single picture of a theory-independent world. Rather, various aspects of the world, from chemical interactions to the growth and development of organisms, brain dynamics and social interactions, can be more or less successfully described by partial models. These models are always bound to our observations and actions and circumscribed in their application. The fields of complex systems theory and network science add mathematical precision to these claims by focusing on holes rather than the reduction of parts complex systems theory is the study of systems such as the brain living organisms or the earth's global climate whose behavior is difficult to model how the system responds depends on its state and context such systems exhibit self-organization spontaneous pattern formation and sensitive dependence on initial conditions which are very small changes to these initial conditions can lead to widely different outcomes Network science analyzes complex systems by modeling their elements as nodes and the connections between these as links. It explains behavior in terms of network topologies, the arrangement of nodes and connections, and global dynamics, rather than in terms of local interactions at the micro level. Inspired by these perspectives, we propose an alternative vision that seeks to move beyond the blind spot. Our experience and what we call reality are inextricable. Scientific knowledge is a self-correcting narrative made from the world and our experience of it evolving together. Science and its most challenging problems can be reframed once we appreciate this entanglement. Now let's return to the problem we started with the question of time and the existence of a first cause now many religions have addressed the notion of a first cause in their mythic creation narrative to explain where everything comes from and how it originates they assume the existence of an absolute power or deity that transcends and confines uh, the confines of space and time uh, with few exceptions god or gods create from without to give rise to what is within. Unlike myth, however, science is constrained by its conceptual framework to function along a causal chain of events. The first cause is a clear rupture of such causation, as Buddhist philosophers pointed out long ago in their arguments against the Hindu theistic position that there must be a first divine cause – How could there be a cause that was not itself an effect of some other cause? The idea of a first cause, like the idea of a perfectly objective reality, is fundamentally theological. These examples suggest that time will always have a human dimension. The best we can aim for is to construct a scientific cosmological account that is consistent with what we can measure and know from the universe or of the universe from the inside. The account can't ever be a final or complete description of cosmic history. Rather, it must be an ongoing self-correcting narrative. Time is the backbone of this narrative. Our lived experience of time is necessary uh, to make the narrative meaningful. With this insight, it seems it's the physicist's time that is secondary. It's merely a tool to describe the changes we're able to observe and measure in the natural world. The time of the physicist then depends for its meaning on our lived experience of time. We can now appreciate the deeper significance of our three scientific conundrums, the nature of matter, consciousness, and time. They all point back to the blind spot and the need to reframe how we think about science. When we try to understand reality by focusing only on physical things outside of us, we lose sight of the experiences they point back to. The deepest puzzles can't be solved by purely physical terms because they all involve the unavoidable presence of experience in the equation. There's no way to render reality apart from experience because the two are always intertwined. To finally see the blind spot is to wake up from a delusion of absolute knowledge. It's also to embrace the hope that we can create a new scientific culture in which we see ourselves both as an expression of nature and as a source of nature's self-understanding. We need nothing less than a science nourished by this sensibility for humanity to flourish in the new millennium. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast.